Hello, you are now in Carl's Orbit, where interesting people are interviewed as to who they are, what they do, and how they do it. Our guest is John G. Kruth. He's a parapsychologist, educator, lecturer, researcher. He's the executive director of the Rhine Research Center, and he's the founder of the Rhine Education Center. He's been involved in parapsychology for more than 35 years, and uh, he's a member of the Rhine Research Team since uh, 2009. Welcome to Carl's Orbit, John. Hey, Carl, it's good to be here with you. Yeah. Hey, John, tell us, uh, what is parapsychology uh, and uh, what goes on at the Rhine Research Center and what is it exactly that you do? Well, that's a really interesting yeah. question because, you know, when people when people think of parapsychology, they have all these different ideas of what it is. Um, some people think of uh, the ghost hunting shows that are on TV. Uh, some people think about uh, UFOs and aliens and Bigfoot and things like that. Um, none of those things are what we do. <laughs> oh. Parapsychology is a science. We are... we. Um, have we used established research protocols and have peer-reviewed journals and we study phenomena that you've heard of i'm sure like esp extrasensory perception yeah uh things like telepathy mind-to-mind communication or clairvoyance getting information about objects from a distance or precognition people mm. who are able to get information through time like uh, about things that haven't happened yet um, and extrasensory perception is one of the main things that parapsychologists study. But we also look into psychokinesis, or PK, mind-matter interaction, having an effect on objects around you, whether it might be intentional or unintentional, without touching them. No. Uh, and, and those are the major areas of study. But we also have another area called survival studies, which more people might be familiar with. It's similar to things like um, near-death experiences. People who die, literally die, their heart stops or their brain activity stops, but they continue to have experiences and then they're brought back to life. Oh. And they remember them. Um, reincarnation. Um, people who remember their past lives. Mediumship. People who say they are able to communicate with spirits nice. or souls. And they're able to bring that information back and communicate it to people. And also what people consider ghost hunting, we call it field investigations, where we look into unusual phenomena like uh, apparitions, where people see what they believe are spirits or hauntings, locations that seem to have some sort of strange uh, behavior there. We look at all of these things from a very scientific perspective. Oh, okay. So we go out and we investigate and we'll look at the, look at the locations or bring people into our lab and test them in very controlled conditions to make sure, you know, Carl, the one thing we want to be sure is we're not fooling ourselves. Mm, <laughs> yes. Because yes. it's so, it's so easy for us to, make assumptions about what we're seeing and in any scientific endeavor your whole goal is to really discover what's happening not what you believe is happening now how do you answer the doubters who say that uh, this is all pseudoscience rather than something that uh, can be put in the category of scientific research so most of the people who um 
are there's different types of skeptics. There are some people who are true scientific skeptics who they're very valuable to the field and very valuable in any scientific endeavor. In fact, I'm very skeptical. Huh? <laughs> and, you know, when we're doing any research and we get results that demonstrate what we're looking for, yeah. I always wonder: Have I made a mistake? And I'm always trying to find a, a better way to examine it. But there are other people who, first of all, they might believe this stuff is just impossible. Yeah. It it does. If if this were true, then we'd have to change all of science. Physics is broken, or our statistics are broken, or all our research is broken. So this can't be true. Well, that's not a very scientific approach. And in addition, but besides that, there's also people who they see. There are this field because people consider,、um, like,、um, Madame Cleo, you know, <laughs>、uh, the the idea that there、right. are people who are going on TV saying, "Hey, I can read your future for you and tell you to send me, you know, three hundred dollars and I'll tell you all about your future." There are many people who play on people's emotions. Or the fortune teller with the crystal ball. Ex exactly、yeah. this sort of thing, and when you have this sort of have activity. It makes people doubt. It makes them think it's all fake. Yeah. And 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 I'm not saying these people are all real, but I am saying that just because there are fakes out there doesn't mean that these phenomena do not occur. Of course. And of course,、yeah. and what we do is we have since 19. Well, it's it's actually from the from the 19th century, people started examining different reports of hauntings and ghosts and poltergeist activity. And in the 1930s, J.B. Ryan was at Duke University. He was a psychology professor, and he began studying what he coined as extrasensory perception. No,、oh, he coined it, huh? Yes.、Um, and so this terminology, he popularized it and publicized it,、yeah. and be began using it. And、uh, and many lectures, he wrote a book called Extrasensory Perception,、mm. which became a bestseller. And the reason it was a bestseller, and the reason people were so interested, is he was a professor, and he formalized exploration into these topics. Since that time, we have almost ninety years of peer-reviewed research that's been done within this field. So many people who are doubters, who don't believe this work. They haven't. They don't know that there's actual real research that's been published. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they haven't. They haven't read the articles and haven't seen them, and so they naturally are saying, "Oh, it doesn't fit into my worldview." There's a whole bunch of fakes out there, so it can't be real. Where could、But、they get the information find, from, John? Oh well, the you know there's a number of different journals, but the Ryan publishes and has published since the、uh, 1930s the Journal of Parapsychology. Ah, that is just one. Of the peer-reviewed published journals that's published within the field, there's also one called the、uh, Journal of Scientific Exploration, which is an open-access journal that's available on the web.、Hmm. Uh, and there's a, another magazine called Explore Magazine, which is peer-reviewed and also publishes. But these are just a few of the publications that come out of this field. Yeah, many people who are within the field of parapsychology publish in more. Traditional scientific journals as well. Ah, ah. Now, now you were saying uh, uh, before we went online,、uh, you were saying that、uh, you had just finished up with some kind of research that you were doing.、Uh, what was that all、right. about? 
well, we have a number of different research projects that are active at the Rhine right now and pretty much at any time. But one of the major studies that I've been doing for about, I guess, probably about 12 years now is looking at something called ultra-weak photon emissions or biophotons hmm. from people who say that they're energy healers or maybe they say they're martial artists or they do a lot of meditation. Yeah. And what this is, uh, you know, biophotons. What does that mean? What is it? It's a uh, um it it's ultraviolet light emissions oh. that come from people. Huh. But not just people, it also comes from animals, huh. any other animals, plants, and even any organic matter to the point of single cells will release this light. Wow, that's amazing. Oh. And and this is in parapsychology. Now, 50 years ago in 1970 when this man named Fritz Pop started to study this in earnest, everybody thought he was crazy and they said, "Well, who cares about it?" But since that time, biologists have gotten really interested <laughs> because it's a consistent phenomenon hmm. and they're trying to determine hey, why first of all does everything produce this light and it seems it comes from all organic matter. Um, Secondly, how does it how is it produced? And third, what's it for? <laughs> why is this light coming from people and animals and what what's the what's the purpose behind it? Well, what I do in my lab is besides the that's all strict biology. What I do in my lab is I bring in these people who say that they're healers or martial artists and I ask them to focus on on their healing activity focus on a martial arts form and i look for variations in the light during episodes of focused intention hmm. so when people are just sitting there doing nothing we see a normal glow around people um and it's it's a little different than the aura that you might have heard about yes, but we yes. all do have a natural glow hmm. around us and when they focus with about 10% of the people that I bring into my lab I see changes in the mm. amount of light that's being produced to the point that I'm seeing changes going from in a very dark room I'm actually counting individual photons wow. and I'll change it it'll go change from about 20 photons a second and it'll jump up to 60 in some cases it jumps up to 300 or 3000 photons Whoa. a second. Big difference. Very so large oh. that I don't need statistics to yeah. tell me something yeah. weird is happening. <laughs> yeah, really, really. What do you use, John? Yeah. A, a, a photometer to measure the amount of photons? It's called a photo multiplier tube. Oh. It's a piece of equipment that's used in laser technology, it's used in biology, it's used in physics. Uh, it's a traditional instrument that's used to measure light. And we are in an extremely dark room, completely dark inside of another dark room to keep it because we're counting individual photons. And so we can't have a lot of stray photons around. Right. It has to be very dark in the room at that point in time. Yeah. But um but we do but as I said, we find that there's about 10% of the people who seem to produce or recruit, we don't know which, but they're we're seeing more light in the room. when they're focusing their intention on healing or doing martial arts no it's light 
what does that mean? Yeah. Right. This is the question. So why, why do we care about light? Well, when we talk to people who are energy healers, they talk about removing energy blockages in the body. We, you know, we can't see this. We don't, me- we don't know how to measure, but they talk about it this way. Yeah. They talk, they f- say they feel this energy and they're m- removing blockages and allowing the energy to flow. Hmm. We talk to martial artists. They talk about uh, manipulating chi, life force energy in the body. Hmm. And we talk to meditators and they feel the kundalini energies rising through their body. All of these descriptions of energy. You talk to a physicist or a chemist and they say, look, there's potential energy and kinetic energy. Neither of those is what you're describing. So I don't know what you're describing. Hmm. Well, what we are measuring is light. Hmm. And so light we- is an electromagnetic energy. Yes. Huh. So the question is, when, since we're measuring this light and it occurs when people are describing having energy experiences, Perhaps the energy that they're talking about when they talk about chi is actually this ultraviolet light that we're measuring in our lab. Oh, that's interesting. Ah, so uh, h- how would you come to that kind of interpretation or conclusion that uh, that ultraviolet light is a form of what is known as chi? So it's slowly. It happens slowly, Carl. You know. You, you can't just do one experiment or a few experiments and say, oh, we figured it all out. No, as with any sort of discovery, when we're working within the sciences, you you get a hypothesis, you measure, you see if it, see if it's supported. And if it is, you replicate. Hmm. Well, I've been doing this, like I said, for about 12 years. I've had about 250 or so different uh, sessions that I've done that are that I can use as experimental sessions within my lab. And we're trying to make some progress to understand not only we see that it happens, but we want to know under what condition it's more likely to happen. Mm-hmm. So the study I was doing today, Carl, is actually looking at people's physiology and looking at things like their heart rate, uh, the variance in their heart rate, their respiration, skin temperature, skin response, um, and blood flow. And trying to see if there's a correlation between when I see changes in the biophotons and whether there's changes in the physiology that correspond with it. Just trying to learn a little bit more about the phenomena. And as we learn more about it, we have a better idea of whether it is something we might call chi. Now, at this point, John, uh, would you be able to say whether or not uh, the emission of, of this energy in the form of ultraviolet as you're measuring it, uh, is a result of meditation or can uh, anyone do it uh, without meditating? Well, the light naturally is produced by anything that's organic. Just by living, oh, you produce the light. Okay. Yes. But the but what we're looking at is whether focused meditation, healing, martial arts, these sorts of things whether people will produce more light under those conditions. Ah, okay. So the amount of light produced is what you're measuring relative to, in your research, uh, uh, physiological changes, uh, blood pressure, temperature, and so forth. Right. And so, yeah, so we're looking to see if there's any correlation between physiology. But, you know, the, the whole idea is to determine this light occurs. This is biology. This light occurs. Under certain conditions, there's more 
than other times. And so why is there more at some times rather than others? Mm. This is why we're this is why we're doing the research in the lab and specifically looking at people who talk about energy. Well, that because is light, wow. because light is a form of energy. Yeah, yeah. I guess that would include other kinds of uh, activities in the body, including what goes on in the brain in terms of the neurotransmitters that might be released at one point or another during uh, the emission of this uh, these biophotons in the form of ultraviolet light, and so forth. Well, there's a lot of variables involved. Oh, oh, oh. oh my goodness, yes. This is why I said we discover things slowly. <laughs> yes, I can understand. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have a lot of um, a lot of confidence in, in the paths that I'm following with my research, but when it comes to interpreting the results, I'm extremely conservative because um, I don't want to guess and get ahead of myself. No, no. I want to really report what we're actually finding. Um, and so interpreting conservatively is a, it, it takes time to overcome that. Wow. Wow. I, and I wonder if this spills over into any of the other uh, areas of research conducted by uh, the Ryan Research Center in terms of, say, uh, reincarnation and uh, uh, mental telepathy and things of that nature. So this is some of the work that we're continuing to pursue as well. As I mentioned, the work I'm, I'm focused on right now is related to people people who are saying they're energy healers and martial artists yeah, and okay. meditators. But I have had other people come into the lab who are mediums, uh, people who are able to do psychokinesis, PK, mind matter interaction. Uh, I've actually we actually did a, uh, some sessions a few years ago with a woman who had an. Um, she had a phantom limb. She had had an amputation. Yeah, yeah. But she still felt the limb. Right. right. And, our, and our question was, when she is using that limb to interact with substances, like glowing substances, yeah. do we see more light? Yeah. And so we've we've done different things, like the tr just to try to see if we can learn more about the nature of this light, because biologists don't understand it either <laughs> and this we're trying to the goal is to contribute to our knowledge and sciences mm. and looking at people who um our science is related to parapsychology with esp so all of the esp phenomena to determine whether uh, the uh, biophotons are in any way related um, and you know when we talk about light a lot of people say, well, how could light do that? Right. What, what can light do that would make this happen? How could it help with telepathy? Well, when we think in terms of uh, light, we often just think in terms of how bright it is or, you know, like I'm counting the number of photons for intensity. And we talk about wavelengths. But there is another property of light that we use all the time. And that is as an information transfer device. All of our internet, all of our communication systems use fiber optics, which is just using light at different frequencies and wavelengths in order to carry information and communicate. So it's possible that the light that we're finding, this biophoton light that we're finding, is being used to transfer information between individuals hmm. as a form of telepathy. We, don't, we haven't determined this. But these are the hypotheses that we're looking at to try to see if we can learn more 
to firm up our science and our, the basis for, for our mechanisms for telepathy. Yeah, what uh, what uh, is interesting too and might be uh, looked into in research is the notion that all these different kinds of ESP and uh, parapsychological uh, phenomena act at at great distances. So distance doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Right, and, and that's one of the things. Uh, so when we're talking about energy and talking about energy transfer, you have the inverse square law, which uh, says that energy will continue to reduce and get weaker and weaker as you increase the distance. And this happens with all energy. This is consistent. But there are certain phenomena that seem to violate that situation or that uh, principle. And those are non-local phenomena. For example, in quantum physics. Yes, yes. We have a, a there's a phenomena, well-known phenomena that's been established called entanglement. Mm. And entanglement, two objects that have been separated, and typically photons or electrons, very small objects, in very specialized conditions. When they're separated from in, from each other, information seems to be maintained as if they are a single entity. And they can be separated by many miles. And what they find is that they still behave as if they are a single entity, even though there's no connection between the two objects, hmm. between the photons or electrons. The question then becomes, well, is telepathy using a similar non-local mechanism? Could psychokinesis or healing be using a non-local method of uh, to to demonstrate what's going mm. on how does the energy come into this thing yes yes uh, well, so i'm wondering it's, how, how would you go about them well it occurs to me you'd have to discover how you'd go about in doing research involving the idea that entanglement is involved in what we're talking about in terms of the parapsychological phenomena right there so uh, there, besides entanglement, there is another phenomenon called the observer effect. Yes, which is which is very prevalent, and that's a, the second major phenomenon in quantum physics. Uh, and this is that uh, matter, or in this case, light waves, tend to act like a like a wave. And when you're not watching them, but as soon as you start watching them, they start acting like photons, like particles. Mm. That's a really weird idea. But just the act of giving an intent attention, paying attention to something, can change light, can yes. change the way reality is. This is a phenomenon that has been studied in parapsychology, where instead of actually having instruments observing or looking or paying attention to light waves, mm. they're using... Um, they're having meditators project their consciousness and imagine that they're observing the activity. Ah, ah, ah. And just projecting consciousness seems to have the same effect as if you had an actual observing instrument there. Oh, really? So, ah. and this adds to the knowledge of the observer effect. Yes, this experiment was done probably about six years, six or seven years ago, hmm. in California. Um, so these these sorts of things we are trying, we're using our knowledge that we gain from parapsychology in this what we consider edge science. Oftentimes, things that aren't typically accepted by uh, physicists, chemists, biologists, 
And we're trying to determine if there is a way that we can contribute and help, help to learn more about the world. Now, this notion of the extension of consciousness, uh, does that dip into the area of remote viewing and possibly clairvoyance? Uh, of course. Um, clairvoyance and remote, view, remote viewing is a specific type of clairvoyance. Mm. Clairvoyance is getting information about objects or events that are hidden from a distance oftentimes. It can be something as simple as maybe a photograph that's in an envelope, or it could be something I have in my desk in the other room that you can't see, or it could be something halfway around the world. Huh. And people have developed techniques and they've demonstrated that they're able to, not every time, but they're able to get information from a distance. Why isn't it consistent? Well, I consider it the same way that, you know, even the best home run hitters don't hit a home run every time they're no. at bat. <laughs> you know, just, yeah, well, it, it happens, and you can't say home runs don't happen or these guys can't hit a home run. It's just that it doesn't happen every time. Yes. It takes certain conditions. No. It takes certain people to be involved with the situation. And they're, but they are able to get information well enough and regularly enough that it's become very useful in different situations. Um, for example, uh, the U.S. government had a program, a remote viewing program that they ran for over 25 years where they had trained people to be able to get information from a distance and they would target them. This was back in the 1970s and 80s on the Soviet Union. Yeah to determine what was happening in certain buildings in the Soviet Union. They um, used this same group to help to locate downed aircrafts or people who had been taken hostage to learn more about terrain they were about to enter. Um, so they, they've used this quite regularly and as a program called Stargate that was uh, as part of the intelligence agency for the U.S. government for over 20 years. Yeah. Wow, amazing, amazing information and uh, amazing uh, ideas about the phenomenon and how possibly it works and research going on involving it. Whoa, and there are many other areas, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned in the beginning involving parapsychology. Wow, it would take uh, a long interview, <laughs> longer than, than the half hour that we're doing to... Uh, touch upon all these different topics. Wow. <laughs> I might even say it would take a lifetime yeah, to cover all these different areas, and then you're still only getting close. <laughs> now, now, does everybody have have the capability to perform in this way, or does it require, like, for example, some people uh, have the skill to, to be musical versus those who have trouble with music and notes and singing and things of that nature. And so some people are born with that skill. Other people have to be taught that skill and other people can never be taught that skill. Does that apply to uh, this whole area we're talking about as well? Everything that we found in our research indicates that it is very similar to any other ability or skill that people have. And um, as you said, with music, there are people who have very natural abilities from very young age and they grow up with it. There are others who they may not be as be as naturally inclined, but they work really hard and they have good teachers and they develop skills over a number of years and they can do pretty well. 
And then you have the people who are very natural at it and they work really hard at it. And then you have phenomenal musicians in the same way that's happens the same way with any sort of all of our research indicates that it happens the same way related to ESP experiences, um, the ability to do remote viewing. Um, and, and there are certain factors, personality factors or environmental factors that we find contribute to the development of these skills. So we have with our, you mentioned the Rhine Education Center when you started. Um, the Rhine Education Center has started in 2011 and it's has it started out as a method to teach people to become parapsychologists because there's no universities in the United States that offer a degree in parapsychology. John? They, mm -hmm. You're messing up my mind here. I was just about to ask you about the Lion Education Center. <laughs> you well, I'm happy that I was able to just get a little bit ahead of you there. <laughs> but so, the, so we're we're we were started out teaching people how to be, be scientists, work within this field, because all the research that I did and everything I learned, I had to learn on my own. And I had to structure my own study program in order to learn how to do the analyses, yeah. in order to learn how learn more about the research methods. And there's specific research methods for our field that you just can't pick up from other studies. Yeah, so the Ryan Education Center was designed to help people become scientists. But over the last 10 or 12, 11 years that we've been doing it, it's expanded. And so now we do still teach people the research aspect of it and teach them the theoretical foundation and also give them a skeptical perspective related to it. Hmm. But in addition, we teach them how to apply it in different areas. So for example, we have some courses starting in just a few weeks in August where we have um, someone who's going to be teaching about out of body experiences. Oh, really? Another, hmm. another person teaching on lucid dreaming huh. where you become aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. And what can you do with that? Hmm. We have someone who's teaching about dowsing. And we have a course on developing your intuition. Utilizing the findings of our scientific work over the cent last century, what do we know about the characteristics and the practices that help people to do better when they come to our laboratories? And can you do this on your own to develop your own intuition and improve it? How could one get involved, so, by the way, John, in, in this education area? So the courses are open to the public, and uh, they're available at rhineedu.org. So it's R-H-I-N-E-E-D-U dot org. Uh, that's the Rhine Education Center website, and we offer courses every quarter. So we have a summer quarter starting in August, and uh, we'll have more courses in October for the fall quarter as well. Do you have a website that uh, people might access? Yes, that's rhineedu.org. Or you can go to the Rhine website at rhine.org, and that will bring you to um, the Rhine, Rhine Research Center. And from there, you can move on to the Education Center as well. And how about contacting you? Do you have a Facebook or something of that nature? Well, most of, mostly you can connect with me through the Rhine. Oh, okay. And, yes, we, we are on social media. You know, we're on Facebook, we're on 
Uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, haven't really gotten the rest of the social media that active, but you'll find us here and there. <laughs> Just keep an eye out, and you, you can find us if you search for Ryan Research Center. Ah, okay, okay. Well, thank you, John, for being uh, in Cause Orbit. Appreciate that very much, and I'm sure we've learned a lot just by listening to you in uh, this interview. Wow, I guess a lot of people uh, are interested in this area, and you might find them uh, uh, trying to access and maybe be accessing uh, the website of Ryan Research Center, uh, Ryan Education Center, and maybe even contacting you in the future as well. Thanks again for being in Calls Orbit. Thanks for inviting me, Carl. I'm happy to be here. And um, you want to do this again? Let me know. Yes, that's quite interesting to see how that research is coming along. Right. <laughs> be good. Thank you, be Carl. Good. <laughs> that would be good. I've been talking to uh, John G. Kruth, K-R-U-T-H, and uh, been talking about parapsychology in general, all the areas that it covers and the Ryan Research Center and Ryan Education Center. So join us again in Carl's Orbit.